Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we think of our Savior, I invite you to take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 1. And if you've been following with us, either uh, on live stream or in person on Wednesday nights over the course of our Lent series, you know that over the past six weeks we've focused on the theme of confession and repentance, preparing our hearts for a Savior. And when John the Baptist first stepped into the wilderness outside of Judea and began his public ministry, what were his first words? His first words were, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we've seen from both the New Testament and the Old in in recent weeks, the path to forgiveness and salvation, the path into God's kingdom runs through honest and humble confession and repentance of our sin. But the subjects of of sin and salvation, I think, take on added weight, don't they? When we come to Easter week and we come to Thursday night and and Friday and we see Jesus, see, hangs on the cross, the perfectly righteous Son of God, torn, beaten, and pierced for our transgressions. And there we have our sin and our salvation brought together together in the person of Jesus Christ, as he takes the punishment we deserved to offer us the hope that only he can give. And 1 John chapter 1 brings these realities of sin and salvation together around confession and repentance and the shed blood of Christ. And so that's what I want to look at tonight. If you have your Bibles open, I invite you to read. We'll start with verse 8 in 1 John 1 and read through verse 2 of 1 John 2. Here's the word of the Lord. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank You for Jesus Christ the righteous, Your Son, whom You sent to the cross. When we think of all that Jesus endured on the cross, If the point is not the sufferings themselves that he endured, but the love of Jesus for us, that he would go through those sufferings for our sake. And so tonight I pray that you would enable us to see our sin clearly in order to see how great our Savior is clearly to the glory of your name. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. It was 26 years ago, in the year 1994, that the trial of the century began its 11-month saga. 
The trial of the century, of course, for those whose memories don't go back that far, was the trial of O.J. Simpson for double murder. It began in 1994 and extended through most of 1995. And from O.J. Simpson's attempted escape, complete with a police chase that was nationally televised to 95 million viewers, they interrupted the NBA Finals to show the police chase on national TV. From that chase at the beginning to one of the first instances of DNA evidence in the trial to the not guilty verdict in the end, this trial likely garnered more attention and interest from our nation and across the world than any other trial in American history. And it was a trial which, as some have put it, everyone knew that Simpson was guilty. The question was whether it could be proved. And the answer to that question, as it turned out, was it couldn't. For the jury handed down a not guilty verdict, a verdict that polls say today pretty much universally Americans believe was wrong, a a verdict that was overturned essentially two years later in a civil trial, which ruled Simpson responsible for both deaths. And the question that has been asked is, how does a man that everyone knows is guilty wind up with a not guilty verdict? Of course, a significant part of the answer to that question has to do with the defense team that O.J. Simpson assembled. And if you were following that trial, you'll remember that the defense team that he assembled was known as the Dream Team. It was an assembly of the best lawyers and defense attorneys that could be had, a number of them. And the defense attorneys questioned the evidence. They accused the police of racism. They sowed doubt at every turn in order to undermine the case. But the question that's asked about the O.J. Simpson trial, in many ways, is the same question that we're left asking when we turn to 1 John chapters 1 and 2 tonight. And the question is this. When it comes to men and women like us that everyone knows are guilty, How do we end up with a not guilty verdict before the throne of God? And once again, just like with the O.J. Simpson trial, the answer has a lot to do with the advocate, with the defense attorney that has shown up on our behalf. But of course, unlike the O.J. Simpson trial, 1 John 1 declares that this not guilty verdict about sinners like you and I, based on the appeal of this advocate, is both a faithful and a just verdict. And the question is, how can that be true? And that's what we want to look at in our time together tonight. And as we do, I I want to review truths that many of us have heard over and over, undoubtedly, truths of the gospel. But I hope we will slow down tonight with our minds and our hearts focused on Christ, headed to the cross for our sake, to understand the full implications of his death for us. And as we do that, I want us to see the reality of our sin, the response we are called to, to our sin, and the solution for our sin. So let's begin with verse 8 of chapter 1, where the text declares the reality of our sin. And it's repeated again in verse 10 as well. And the reality is stated quite clearly and quite simply, and it is just this, that every single one of us is both a sinner and we have sinned. We are a sinner by nature, and we sin regularly in life. You know, the writer and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote just over a hundred years ago that sin is the one scientifically verifiable doctrine of Christianity. 
All you have to do is look around you and you see the evidence for sin all around us. But of course, for Chesterton, sin was not primarily seen by looking all around us. Sin was primarily seen by looking within us. In 1905, the Daily News in London published an article with the title, What's Wrong with the World? Well, there's a good question. Probably a question that sparks all sorts of answers. Probably a question some of us may have asked in recent months and years. And not surprisingly, in 1905, that article garnered a lot of responses, but one of them came from G.K. Chesterton. And in G.K. Chesterton's response, a letter that he wrote to the Daily News, he said this, The answer to the question, what is wrong with the world, is or should be, I am wrong with the world. And you see what Chesterton was saying. Don't look for all the problems out there. For every one of us, the problem is in here. And yes, it is true, as Chesterton was pointing out, that there are many who suffer injustice and harm from others. There are many that face anxiety and grief in life. And that is significant. But the root problem, the great danger for each one of us, the thing that puts us in greatest peril, is not what anyone has done to us or could do to us. It is not what may happen to us from the outside. It is always, at its greatest level, the sin that is in each one of us. It is the sin that we commit. It is the sin that we contribute to the relationships and situations that we enter. It is the sin that marks us as we stand before the judgment seat of God. And as the Apostle John puts it here, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And yet, despite the clarity of these facts, it's hard to imagine a more simple declaration, isn't it? We have all sinned. We are all sinners. If we say that we have not, we make God a liar. Clear and straight to the point. And yet, despite that, it is so easy for us to do just what John warns us not to do. And that's to deceive ourselves and to minimize our sin. Just think about all of the excuses that we make to begin to try to minimize our sin. We blame others as the main problem for all of the things that go on in our lives. We say things like, well, yes, perhaps I should have responded more graciously. But my response was certainly understandable in light of what they did. We compare ourselves to others. We minimize our sin by comparing it to those who are worse than us. And by comparison to the really bad people we know, our sin is really a minor issue. I certainly heard a number of times from mouths of, of teens that I've talked with, if my parents would realize how bad other people are, they'd be thankful I was their child instead of trying to point out my sin. But let's not pin that on teens because we do the same thing. How many times do we say things like, boy, that was a mistake, but you know, let's talk about the real problems around here and we compare ourselves to others. Or how about distraction? We distract ourselves with the busyness of life or the good things that we're pursuing so that we don't take the time to examine our hearts and see sin that's at play in us. We blame our circumstances or, or trauma or physiological or psychological challenges rather than our heart and our sin and our choices. And, and, and again, 
circumstances and psychological challenges, what others have done to us are real issues. They need care and understanding. Nothing that I'm saying is discounting that at all. But we have to be careful that that never becomes a reason to minimize our sin, which is still and always the root problem and the greatest danger to each one of us. Or we can minimize our sin as as mistakes, mistakes that everyone makes rather than products of a sinful heart that is concerned above all for my comfort and my good. And in all of these ways and so many others, we can begin to minimize, ignore, or deny our sin. But you see what John says. He says, not only is that deceiving ourselves, not only does that deceive ourselves, it also makes God himself a liar. Because what has God told us? God has told us that each one of us is broken by the fall. Each one of us has sin and selfishness at work in our hearts, our minds, and our bodies so that Romans 3 can conclude there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Or Isaiah 53, 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And to recognize and believe this is, as John puts it, to have the truth in us. That is the starting point for each one of us. If we would know the hope of Easter, if we would know the comfort of the gospel, we start with the problem with our own hearts, the condition and reality of our sin, just as John does. I think it's worth noting that even as John will so strongly call believers away from sin to righteousness, first John will repeatedly call God's people to righteousness and repeatedly call us from sin. And yet despite that, he is talking even in these verses to professing believers. As John's going to make it clear in chapter 2 verse 1, he's writing to believers that they may not sin, but he says, for anyone who does sin. In other words, John is writing to believers knowing that sin continues to be at play in our hearts, in our bodies, in our minds. And that will be the case until that day when we stand before Christ perfected by Him fully. But I think John's point is that our hope of righteousness, our way back into the presence of God, will never be found in minimizing or denying our sin, but only in recognizing and acknowledging our sin to the full. And so as believers, we're called to recognize this reality. When it comes to sin against God, we stand guilty. Sinners marked by sin. That's the reality of our sin. Well, what's our response to our sin? What does John call us to do in response? Well, we see that in verse 9. Certainly this has to be one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. Our response to our sin. But we know, our, we know our natural heart response, right? We know when we see our sin, what we typically do. Our typical response is to hide. It's what Adam and Eve did right from the beginning, right? The first sin that entered the world. And you get the tragically comic scene with Adam and Eve thinking that they can hide their sin by ducking behind a bush. And here comes God into their presence in the garden. But we do it too. We probably all have memories of times we've tried to hide our sin. Or if not, we can, can laugh at our, our two or three-year-olds or someone else's two or three-year-old with the, the frosting and the sprinkles around their mouth saying, no, I didn't eat the cookie. And I was thinking back to a time I was 12 years old and hitting golf balls in my yard, something I 
enjoyed doing. I actually um, was able to get my parents complete new siding uh, at the expense of the insurance agency. They said a hailstorm of epic proportions really did damage to your house. So, no, no, I know where those marks came from. But in this occasion, I was hitting golf balls around the yard, and I hit one right into the eye of my neighbor friend, sent him to the hospital. So what do I do? Say nothing. Hope my parents don't find out. Hope everything will be okay. That's what we do. We hide our sin. We try not to, we try not to tell. We try to pretend it's not there. Pretend everything's normal. This pattern plays out in the nurseries, living rooms, courtrooms, boardrooms, all over the country again and again. And yet we know this hiding is useless because our real guilt is not before one another. It is before God himself who sees every thought and every hidden motive of our hearts. And so in the face of our guilt comes God's invitation in 1 John 1, 9, that beautiful verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the door to forgiveness, the door to reconciliation and redemption opens through confession of our sins, confession and repentance. As one commentator points out, John here is not using confession to refer to a mere acknowledgement that we've done something wrong, but to an admission that lays our actions honestly before God as wrong and seeks his forgiveness for them. This, this verse implies not just a saying we've done something, but a hatred of our sin and a desire for forgiveness and cleansing from the wrong that we've done. And I think if, if each one of us were honest about the extent of our sin and our repeated failures in sin, the surprise of this verse is not that we need to confess, but that there would be any real hope in that confession. Because how is it that someone such as I, who have sinned repeatedly and intentionally against the God of the universe, could find the words if we confess he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. We don't act that way towards one another. If someone sins against us with the repeated and high-handed sin that we sin against God, we are not quick to grant forgiveness. There are conditions that need to be met. We hold that person at arm's length and some of that at some points is, is appropriate. Is there real genuine repentance? But the surprise of this passage is that we would find hope if we come before the holy and perfect God and confess. Here we find a sweeping and comprehensive offer. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a full and complete offer. And not only is the offer comprehensive, but it involves both forgiveness and cleansing. Those two words are important to put together because together they hold out to us the full joy of God's salvation. Think about forgiveness. God promises to forgive us our sins. What does it mean to forgive someone? Well, to forgive someone is to, to make a set of promises to them. It's to promise not to hold that sin against them any longer. It's to promise to give up our right to punish them for their wrong. It's to refuse to let that wrong stand between us and our relationship. Those are the promises that God is making to us when he forgives us. 
that your sin will not stand in the way of our relationship, that I will not punish you for this sin, and that I will not hold this sin against you. That's what the holy God offers to us if we come to him confessing our sin. And then God promises not only will he forgive us our sin, but he will also cleanse us from all our sin. He washes us clean. He removes the stain and the guilt and the shame of sin. What God is offering here is a full and final verdict of not guilty, both releasing us from the punishment that we deserve, but also clearing our name and cleansing our hearts, clearing our record and taking us from being unclean to clean, from being unholy to acceptable and pure in his sight. And that is a verdict that is worth receiving. And the response that opens the door to that verdict is to come to God and to confess our sins to him. But if we're thinking carefully here, we should realize that this verse is what brings us right back to the dilemma of the O.J. Simpson trial. Everyone knew he was guilty, and yet he was declared not guilty. A declaration that was clouded when the courts and public opinion recognized it as an unjust trial in the end. And yet here we're told, when God declares guilty sinners not guilty, it is not a clouded judgment. It is not unjust, but it is faithful and just. And the question is, how can that be? Perhaps the faithfulness of that judgment is easier to see. God's forgiveness demonstrates His faithfulness because God had promised and declared throughout the pages of the Old Testament that He would forgive the sins of His people. Maybe you think of of passages like Micah 7.18 that declares, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of of his inheritance. Maybe you remember the the verse that says a day was coming when he would tread our iniquities underfoot and cast them into the depths of the sea and show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as he has sworn from the days of old. So God's forgiveness is faithful because it's just what he's promised to do. From the moment he covered Adam and Eve with the skins of those animals and promised a Savior to come, God's forgiveness is faithfulness to his word. But what about justice? How can this declaration be just? How can a just God be true to his holy character and also justify sinful humans? Well, the answer to that question is found in chapter 2. And so if you turn to chapter 2 in verses 1 and 2, there we'll see finally the solution for our sin. John opens this second chapter again by reminding his little children of his goal. He's writing these things to you that you might not sin. But John knows himself and his fellow believers. He knows the ongoing battle with sin as we wrestle against the world and the flesh and the devil in this life. And so he comes to the crux of our hope, the solution of our sin. If anyone does sin, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now what exactly is an advocate? Advocate may not be a word we we throw around on a daily basis. An advocate literally means someone who comes alongside someone else for their sake. The same word that's translated advocate here is also translated in other places as, as helper or comforter. Of course, in the legal sense, it's almost always translated as advocate. It's someone who who comes alongside another for their sake to declare their innocence. 
The advocate was the counsel for the defense, the one who would speak up on behalf of that person before the judge. And what John is saying to each one of us in this passage is that for anyone who puts their trust in Christ, who should walk into the courtroom to come alongside us and speak on our behalf before that judge? Who should walk in as our advocate but the Son of God? Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who comes alongside of us to speak for us. And John quickly describes why Jesus is such an effective advocate. He's righteous. His plea on our behalf is effective because he's perfectly righteous, perfectly and completely clean, pure, holy. And as he stands up, he stands up worthy and accepted in God's sight. But of course, Jesus is not only completely righteous, he also went to the cross and shed his blood and died on our behalf. Jesus is the one, of course, that Peter writes about and says that this is the righteous one who died on behalf of the unrighteous so that he might bring them to God. And it's Jesus' death as the righteous Son of God on our behalf that solves this divine dilemma, as theologians have called it over the years. God's justice is met because what's the verdict? The wages of sin is death. The penalty to be paid for sin is death. And here is Jesus who went to death. Jesus in his death satisfies the payment that is due for sins. John here uses the word propitiation, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Again, there's another word we don't use a whole lot, but propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice or offering that's made to resolve or take away someone's anger. If I was over at your house and you had a, a, a vase that was important to you in the front hall and, and I did something foolish, which I'd you know, maybe be want to do, and broke that vase, maybe the next day I'd come over with a gift card and a plate of cookies, baked baked by my wife or daughter, not by me. And that plate of cookies and that that gift card might be my propitiation to try to take away your anger. And maybe it would be successful, maybe not. It depends on the vase. But the propitiation is the thing that, that solves, that takes away the anger against you. And what John is saying here is that God's just wrath against sin is perfectly satisfied when Jesus pays the full penalty that is due against sin. He's paid it all. He's paid the penalty of death in our place. And so when we come into God's presence confessing the very thing that ought to exclude us from God's presence, Jesus walks up alongside us to speak on our behalf. And He is the very one that has already paid the penalty that we would have to pay. And so He has taken away the Father's anger against us and our sin by His own death in our place. In fact, once Jesus walks up alongside us to speak on our behalf, it would now be unjust for God to punish us for our sins if our faith has been put in Him. That would be double jeopardy. It would be requiring payment twice for the same sin. And so it is when Jesus comes up alongside us and speaks on our behalf and takes our place, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it is 
that men and women like us, whom everyone knows is a sinner, can come before the judgment seat of God and hear a not guilty verdict thanks to the advocate who comes on our behalf. As we approach this Easter weekend and we come again to the cross, let me briefly conclude by suggesting that these verses offer us an invitation and a comfort. These verses invite us to examine our hearts and to see our sin, to stop hiding, to stop ignoring, to stop excusing, and to confess our sin openly and honestly so that we might experience the joy of forgiveness and cleansing. I think that almost any of us would say that one of the greatest discouragements in our walk with Christ is to see our remaining sin. To long to please our Savior and to see our sin. When we long to obey our Savior in pure righteousness and see our remaining sin, it's a grief and a discouragement. And sometimes it seems that the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we're aware of our sins. The more we realize we had more sin than we ever thought we did before. And it might be tempting to stop focusing our sin or begin to overlook it or just sigh and assume there's nothing we can do about it. But the ongoing sight of our sin is actually the doorway to see the Lord's goodness and mercy. Because the closer we draw to Him and the more we walk in the light of His Word and His presence, yes, the more we will see our sin. But the more sinful we realize we have been the whole time, the more God is showing us how much we need Him and how much He has done for us the whole time. See, the more day by day of our sin we see, the more day by day we see that Jesus has covered with His blood. The more dependent upon Him we realize we are, the more we need Him. And so Christ is offering us the joy of experiencing 1 John 1.9 with ever greater depth. If we confess our sin, we see His faithfulness and justice to forgive us and cleanse us. If we do not look for and identify our sin and bring it in confession to the cross, we're actually sacrificing an opportunity to be amazed by the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ once again. So that's the invitation to examine our hearts, to see our sin, and to confess it. Because the more we do that, the more we'll be amazed by Christ. And finally, notice the comfort that these verses offer. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I'm not sure about you, but when I think of Jesus and what he does to save me, I so often think of it in past terms. I think of Jesus hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago. And that, of course, is true. That's the centerpiece of his work. But Jesus has not only acted once in the past. These verses tell us that Jesus is continuing to speak on my behalf as my advocate. As I sin against God, Jesus continues to look back at His once-for-all sacrifice and plead on my behalf, to speak on my behalf, demonstrating His mercy and His kindness and His love again and again in the face of my ongoing sin. And I love the way Dane Ortland put it when he said, to be allied with an advocate, one who came and sought me out rather than waiting for me to come to him, one who is righteous in all the ways that I am not, whose heart in the very moments of our sins erupts on our behalf with renewed advocacy in heaven, 
with a resounding defense that silences every accusation that astonishes the angels and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. This is the calm confidence and comfort before the Father that we have because Jesus Christ continues to advocate for us. That's the ongoing work of Jesus. That's who he is. And that's the one we remember tonight as we remember his death on the cross. And my prayer is that as we look at the cross this week, that we would know the joy of confession before a faithful and just God who forgives and cleanses me from all my sin through the work and advocacy of Jesus Christ. I pray that any who has not come with this confession and repentance would do so tonight. And for all those who have before, that we would marvel once again at the great salvation we have in him. Let's pray together. Father, how I thank you for Jesus Christ the righteous who went to the cross in our place, who took the punishment we deserved, who was a propitiation, who satisfied the wrath of God against us, and who now once for all, but again and again, day by day, comes to our side to speak on our behalf, to forgive us and cleanse us, that we might be accepted in your sight. And we thank you, Father, for what you've done for us in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.